Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Middle Earth Mixer. I'm your host, Evan Cooney, and today we're going to talk about episode four of The Lord of the Rings, The Rings of Power. I liked, there was a lot to like in this episode. Uh, there was some things I didn't like, uh, and we're going to talk about it. So back for another quick review. Let's jump right into it. Okay, first, so like I did last time, I'm going to do all of the different storylines. Uh, I think it's just easier that way. So I'm going to start off with Galadriel in Numenor. So what do we have first? We open up and we have, uh, I believe we get Muriel's dream. And it opens and Muriel is kind of in the in the throne room. And there are these women who are bringing babies to her and she's giving them like a blessing. And... There's an earthquake that happens, and Muriel kind of walks over to the uh, the outlook over the city of Armenelos, and she sees this giant wave coming. And I thought that this was a really great scene. You know, I don't have anything bad to say about it. Uh, Nerd, of the, Nerd of the Rings made a really good point about how seeing disasters through the like the sight perspective of somebody who is actually looking at it is, is sometimes a lot more dramatic than if you were getting kind of a wide sky shot. So I really appreciated that. But yeah, no complaints there. Uh, we're kind of getting... We have Muriel who is sitting in for what... Uh, Tar Palantir, her father's character, does in the books kind of this this foresight, this this foreshadowing, and that seems to be, I mean, happening to both her and her father. So it's not it's not fully in line with the lore, but I think the spirit of it is there. I don't have a problem with her being the one who is having these kind of visions and forebodings of the future. She is, after all, her father's daughter, so nothing wrong with that. But moving on, we we have. Farazan, who is we, we have Farazan in the marketplace, right? And he's walking around and he's politicking. Now, this was somewhere that I thought the show could really shine. You know, we maybe get get into the politics of Numenor a little bit, and you have a little bit of court intrigue. I think that that would be cool for them to lean into because not that obviously Lord of the Rings is different from Game of Thrones, but that's one of the things that I find most entertaining about, you know, a show like Game of Thrones or House of Cards is this kind of politicking and court intrigue. So I'd like to see more of that from Farazan, and we got some of it in this episode, which I appreciated. He's in the market, he's shaking hands, and he's got this kind of dorky looking kid named... Uh, um, I forget the name, but it sounds like Kevin. <laughs> so I'm just calling him Kevin. So Farazan's son, Kevin, meets him in the marketplace. And, you know, they're talking for a, a little bit. And then Farazan tells him that he wishes he was wise instead of clever. You know, it was an interesting little line there, but kind of a nothing burger of an exchange. You know, it wasn't really that dramatic. Uh, and, and we hear this rustling. We hear this commotion. Uh, going on in in the rest of the marketplace area and the commotion the source of the commotion is coming from this gentleman who Halbran kind of smacked around in the last episode and you can see he's all beat up in his face you know his eyes like partially swollen and he starts giving this speech complaining about the fact that there is that Galadriel is in Numenor and this was something that I didn't really like. Um, I think that because the timeline is condensed, which is something that I uh, I can't stand, we have to start to see this anxiety happening, this rejection of elf culture. 
And I don't think the show has had time to properly develop it. So this speech just came out really clumsy. Like he's like talking about elves coming over and taking their jobs. You know, he's like workers who don't sleep, who don't age. And it was just really forced and came off like a Trump speech. I don't believe that that's the parallel the showrunners are trying to draw here. I think it's just off of the fact that they need, they haven't touched the whole immortality issue at all whatsoever. So they need to start creating some kind of reason for why the people would have such a disdain toward elves. And I think that this is, I'm sure they will get into it because you have to. If they don't, I mean, I I can't watch the show. If you're showing me Numenor and you're not getting into the philosophical reasons for why you know, men are rebelling against the Valar for why they have such a problem with the elves. One of the problems that I have with the show right now is that they are making Numenor's sin the fact that they don't like the elves anymore. And Numenor's sin is not the fact that they don't like the elves anymore. The fact that they don't like the elves is a symptom of what their sin is. Their sin is their rejection of their purpose. Their sin is their disdain for the fact that they have to die and them, you know, trying by any means necessary to put that off or even remove the gift of Iluvatar. That's that's what death is. It's dying is the gift of Tolkien's God to men. They are meant to depart from the world and go off somewhere else. So that's what Numenor's sin is. You know, it's not it's not a rejection of elf culture like the show has mentioned and and again I'm giving I'm extending some grace here because we're four episodes in and they need to have some type of anxiety that that exists there but they haven't gotten a chance to really get into any of that yet so uh, I'm hoping that they do um but I just that speech real really came off clunky uh and then we have Farazan who takes the reins this gentleman we we saw him standing with Farazan in the queen's court in the past episode so they're clearly working together you know Farazan clearly has this guy out in the streets stirring things up so Farazan can come in as a caesar character and calm everyone down and look like the hero which i appreciate again i like to see that politicking but I want them to get more into that. I don't want to just see the result of that. I actually want to see the dialogue that creates that opening scene. But anyway, so Farazan goes up and he gives this rousing speech. And he, you know, we have a uh, we have a Elrostar Minotaur reference. Uh, Elrond's brother. That's, that's great. A little bit of a lore dump there. And then we have, for the first time in the show, they actually name Armenelos as the, the capital city that they are in. Which... I appreciate it because most of us have been wondering throughout all of these trailers, what city are they in? Because they hadn't named it. Uh, so that was great. That was great to hear. I'm glad that they're at least in Armenelos and they're not kind of merging cities together. You have that. And he basically says that he's never going to let Numenor fall into elven hands. Which, all right. Cool. It was a great, great speech. That guy, Tristan Gravel, who's playing Farazan, I think he captures him really well. Uh, I'm excited to see where his character goes. Um, moving on, we have, uh, it looks like Farazan's son and the, Farazan's son, Kevin, is developing a relationship with this 
non-canon characters, supposed to be Elendil's daughter. They start talking, you know, after Farazhan delivers this speech. So I'm sure that they'll develop maybe a romantic relationship, and that's going to make the tension that Farazhan, uh, of course, is going to eventually have with her father, you know, that that's going to come to a head. That's going to be one of the storylines of this show. I also think that this this girl's going to end up being evil. I think that they have her being becoming an engineer for a reason. I think that she's going to be helping Sauron with his construction projects that he wants to do in Numenor. You remember he builds a temple to Morgoth. I think that she is going to help him build the temple. We have a lot more mentions of Morgoth uh, in this show than I thought that we were going to have. So I really do think that they're going to lean into like that uh, aspect of Morgoth worship that develops in Numenor. That was something that I found very surprising. I didn't think that Morgoth was going to be mentioned so many times. It's almost like he's a character in the show. You just haven't seen him. Galadriel appeals to Mariel to go to Middle-earth and stop Sauron's plan. You remember, she figures out what Sauron's plan is in the last episode to kind of bring all of the evil in Middle-earth together in Mordor. And Galadriel wants to prevent this from happening. So she's appealing to the queen in this next scene that we get and asking for troops. She's asking for people to come and help her to stop the Southlands from becoming Mordor. And she also uh, expresses to the queen that she believes that Halbran is uh, this lost king of the Southlands. Um, the queen says no, and Galadriel starts getting upset, you know, because we know that she is very entitled. She says, I, well, I don't want to talk to you. I want to talk to the real ruler of Numenor. I want to talk to your father up in the tower. And this makes Muriel very upset, and Galadriel gets tossed into the bin in that little prison next to Halbran. And then we kind of jump over to uh, Isildur, who is again, he's on this boat. He's trying to join what I guess is the Navy. Um, and he does not want to do it. So he intentionally gets himself kicked out of the Navy service. And then in this process, he like doesn't tie the rope down and it gets knocked off. And the captain gets mad at him. And he also, the captain also kicks him out and his two friends you know, the one that looks like The Rock. And then they get into a fight in a back alley, and he's like, you know, his friends know that he did it on purpose, blah, blah, blah. No lore context for this, but whatever, they're developing the character. I, I would like to see Isildur developed as a character, so this is fine. We find out that Isildur's mother is dead, um, so something happened there. There isn't any, as far as I know, I mean, this is off the top of my head, I could be wrong, but I, I don't believe that there's any lore context for Isildur's mother anything about Isildur's mother, really. Um, maybe she's named. I don't know. I forget. But yeah, we don't, we don't have anything about that. But it's, it's interesting. It, it doesn't, doesn't necessarily interrupt anything as far as I know. Again, uh, this is off the top of my head. So, so yeah, we, ha we have that happening. And pardon me if I'm kind of speeding through this here, but I, I really just want these to be concise. And I only really care about talking about the stuff that I really found interesting about the episodes. Uh, and then giving you lore context for the things that I find either egregious or really interesting. Okay, so this was a scene I found interesting here. Galadriel is talking to Halbran, and she's very upset. She is frustrated. The queen has said no to her. She is sitting in this cell, and Halbrand is right next to her. And he basically gets up and starts telling her where she's gone wrong. 
in all of this. You've been dealing, you've been going about this the wrong way. And we get this really this odd dialogue. You know, how Brand starts, he says something like, if you really want to know how to control people, he says you have to figure out what their biggest fear is. And then Galadriel goes, and you exploit it. <laughs> that was annoying. I don't know why. I just didn't like the way she said that. And you exploit it. And he goes, no, 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 no. You offer them a solution to it. And then you use that solution to control them. Now, that's an interesting bit of dialogue from Halbrand because that is exactly what Sauron does to the Numenorians. He figures out their greatest fear, their fear of death. They're wanting to live forever, and he uses that to control and ultimately destroy them. But he also offers, it's a lie, of course, but he offers them a solution to that fear by worshiping Morgoth. If you listen to my Fall of Numenor podcast, I talk all about that. But he says that the, the solution essentially is to worship Morgoth, and Morgoth will deliver them from death, which is, of course, a lie. But Halbrand is describing what Sauron does to the Numenorians. So it's interesting that this is being delivered by Halbrand to Galadriel. Again, we just have more dialogue that confirms everybody's suspicions that they are really, the, the writers are really leaning into the fact that this character may be Sauron. And it could just be a misdirection. We don't know. Oh, and then we get the, then right after one of the most interesting things to happen in the show, we get one of the most egregious things to happen in this episode. Farazan comes down with some soldiers to, he, he comes to tell Galadriel that she will be escorted out of Numenor and a boat is going to take her back to the elves. And the soldiers, these Numenorean soldiers, you know, at this point, like, Numenor's power and strength, you could make a strong argument that at this point, Numenor is actually more powerful than the elves. You know, these are fierce, strong men. And Farazan is one of the strongest among them. So I really did not like that, you know, they open the cell to get her out and Gladriel just kind of finesses them all into the cell in this really clunky, ridiculous scene. And Farazan doesn't even attempt to fight her or anything. He looks kind of cowardly. Like he's just standing there with his sword drawn. It was really dumb. I think that, I know I just said that Tristan Dravel captures this character well. And I think he does. But I think that scene really did not. Um, it was corny. So Galadriel escapes by locking the soldiers in her cell. And then she kind of leaves Farazan standing there with Halbrand. And we get this quick shot of Halbrand kind of, it's like a like a quick pan of, of Halbrand like whispering to Farazan and Farazan says something like I can't can't just let her leave and then Halbrand says something else like oh well maybe if you knew where she was going you know you would which was interesting because I'm not sure why Farazan would care that Galadriel is going up to talk to Tar Palantir the ailing old king um, but it did make me think Maybe this is like we're getting a quick taste of if this character is Sauron. Sauron's ability to whisper in Farazan's ear and manipulate him. So, yeah, just wanted to point that out. I thought that was interesting. Galadriel gets away and then she climbs. It was so crazy. She like climbs the tower and busts through the window of Tar Palantir's room. And he's old. She, we find his character, finally get introduced to this character. He's old. He's sick. He's frail. And Muriel is also in the room. And it's at this moment that Muriel reveals to Galadriel that 
part of this vision that her and her father have been having of the eventual downfall of Numenor, this great wave, is it will be heralded by the arrival of some elf. And they realize that Galadriel must be that elf, which is not in the books. In the books, um, Tar Palantir predicts that the death of the White Tree of Nimloth will also be tied to the fall of the line of kings. Uh, But again, it's a prediction. So Tar Palantir has the gift of foresight. So I think it's a fine thing for this show to explore and take some liberty with. And to prove this, Muriel takes Galadriel up into the tower where we have a great bit of lore dump right here. In this tower where the Palantir is, because she's going to show Galadriel this vision using one of the seeing stones. Before that happens, Galadriel is in this, this room and we see a tapestry of Baron and Luthien. Right behind her on the wall, Baron's holding one of the Silmarils. This is according to the director. Uh, this is right after Baron plucks one of the Silmarils from Morgoth's crown. So I thought that was really cool. I appreciate that. Right next to that, we have a shot of Elendil's sword, Narsil, which I, I thought was really cool. We don't have any record of where Isildur or um, where Elendil got Narsil from. So... I think that's fine. It's fine to say that maybe it could have belonged to the royal house before Elendil inherited the sword. So, but that, it was just great to see. And, and it's clearly Narsil. I think that they had admitted that it was. So, yeah, the director said that it was. So, that was cool to see. Little little lore there. And even more crazy was we see uh, Tor's axe in there. And uh, his shield as well. So, again, just, all right. lore dumps all around and sure man you know they're just little hat tips to make you know people like me get excited but it's there and i respect the effort that people are putting in oh also we get a shot of my man ryan gosling's helmet torin torinbar's helmet uh in the background um for those of you who don't follow me on twitter you don't get the ryan gosling reference just just go with it. Um, but yeah, we, we see what looks like, at least, I don't know if they said it, but it, it looks like Torin Torinbar's, uh, the, the helm of Dorloman, uh, which is the, the helmet with the dwarven mask that has Glaurung's figure going down the front of it. it. It was pretty cool looking. You know, you can see it pretty clearly behind Galadriel as she's talking. So, you know, I don't think that that's there for no reason. I think it's, it is the helmet of Dorloman. Uh, and then Galadriel has the vision and it's essentially the same exact thing that Muriel sees when, she, when she's having the vision. It's, it's the wave coming over and... Uh, Muriel says, if I send you away, I can stop this from happening, which is silly. I mean, if you really believed that Galadriel was somehow a herald of an impending disaster, how is sending her away the right thing to do? I didn't get her logic there, but whatever, I guess she thinks that if she prevents the vision from happening at all, she can prolong this inevitable destruction. And again, we still don't know why this destruction is even happening, which is frustrating as as a viewer. You know, I'm sure they're going to explore it eventually. But right now, it's just like this vague, okay, what's going on? Why is Numenor bad? There's no clear reason why Numenor deserves to be destroyed. There's no wickedness really being displayed, or at least anything that merits absolute cosmic destruction. But 
again, we're only on episode four. It just it just feels silly because I'm like, okay, this is, I'm supposed to feel like this intense, impending downfall, and I don't even know why it's happening. As a, as a viewer, I mean, I know why from the books, but it's like, I don't know, why do they deserve this? And moving on, anyway, they go to kick Galadriel out, and they're kind of sending her off on a little boat, and then Muriel starts to see a bunch of the petals uh, falling off of Nimloth, and there's more of them than has been presented in the show at all at this point. And we know that in the last episode, they had quoted that the uh, petals falling off of Nimloth was like the tears of the Valar. You know, so if you see the tree dying, you know, the, the, the petals falling off represents the tree dying. If you see it dying, then there's clearly something wrong. You're doing something wrong. So at that point, she decides to call Galadriel back. She makes this decision to go along with her proposal and take a bunch of Numenorean soldiers to Middle-earth. I found it odd that people had to, like, volunteer for this job because Numenor at this point is extremely militarized, you know? They, I, I feel like they would have soldiers to spare. I don't think people would have to necessarily volunteer, but I, I guess I do see why maybe because the majority of people don't want to help an elf out so maybe they, they don't want to force anybody to go but again you are the queen so it's like just tell some soldiers to giddy up and yeah that ends galadriel's storyline there i think the most interesting bit of dialogue was definitely her exchange with halbran in the jail and we'll see where that goes all right now we can finally talk about my favorite part of this episode unless i actually i'll wait for that I'll end with my favorite part. You're going to have to wait for that one. Let's let's get through Elrond first. So we have an opening shot of Elrond in Eregion. Um, he has this little exchange with Celebrimbor that I found interesting. Celebrimbor uh, said that Elrond reminded him of his father and that his father said that Elrond was going to hold his fate in his hands, which I found interesting. Um, you know, Elrond does lead an army to Eregion to back up Celebrimbor. Uh, unfortunately, it doesn't work. You know, Sauron ends up kind of boxing them out and sacking that city that we see um, in the show, in this episode. Uh, spoiler alert. Uh, that city that we're looking at where Elrond and Celebrimbor are having this discussion gets sacked. And Celebrimbor ends up uh, full of arrows and getting ran through and raised as a standard by Sauron. It's pretty brutal. So that'll be interesting how they handle that in the show. But yeah, Elrond leads an army there, but it, it doesn't it doesn't work. The attack is not repelled. So Celebrimbor sends, he says that Doran hasn't been talking to him. He's confused. He doesn't know what's wrong. He sends Elrond. I'm going to try and just speed through this because I'm already at almost a half hour. Elrond gets sent to Khazad-dûm to figure out what's wrong with Doran. He comes in. Dis is in there. They have this exchange. He's like, where's Doran? Dis lies to him uh, because they don't want to reveal what Doran is really looking for down in uh, the shaft. And we get this moment where Elrond uses kind of the elven sight or ears. I didn't like this because it was just, it just kind of seemed a little bit overpowered. I, I don't think that that's how Tolkien really imagined these abilities that elves have. I, I don't believe that they could hear that far away. Elrond does have the gift of foresight, so maybe that's what they were playing on, but I, I just thought it was too much. 
Elron eavesdrops. He figures out where Doran is, and he goes to that location, and he gets into the shaft, and Doran is upset that he's in there, and they have this exchange. Elron calms him down, and Doran... He, he gets, he talks Doran into revealing what it is they're doing down there by taking an oath. Doran makes him swear an oath on the mountain. And then he says that Dwarven anger goes longer than Elven memory, which I like that line a lot. I thought that was very true to something the dwarves would say. And Doran reveals to Elrond that they are mining for Mithril. And that's like the big reveal, you know, the big callback to Lord of the Rings, member of Frodo's Mithril male. And he he gives Elrond a piece of, of this mithril, and he kind of explains to him the qualities that this metal has. And again, he makes Elrond swear to not tell anybody about it, and Elrond does. And then all of a sudden, we get this earthquake happening, and the mine begins to collapse. But within the rattling, you kind of hear what almost sounds like a roar. And I think that the reason why mithril is such a difficult thing to mine, it's almost like... Providence telling them not to mine this mithril because we know, you know, the dwarves delve too greedily and too deep and they awaken the Balrog. And I think that the reason, you know, Doran express, he expresses to Elrond that this is a very dangerous thing to mine. And I think the reason why it's so dangerous is like, what do we know about Tolkien's universe? Everything there is divine providence going on. So I think that the dwarves are kind of ignoring this clear message that the universe is giving them to stop. And maybe they're, you know, they're not listening and I'm sure it's going to end up to the awakening of the Balrog, which I'm annoyed by. I really wanted it to not be Durin's Bane. I wanted it to be a different Balrog that we see from the trailers. And now the way things are going, I feel like we are going to get the condensed storyline of Doran's Bane waking up and chasing the dwarves out of the mountain. I don't know how that's how that's going to go. I don't know how long they're going to do that over all the seasons, but I definitely feel the the foreshadowing of that happening. So, you know, I mean, that doesn't happen until the third age. So, Again, we would have, this would be another thing in the same vein as like the stranger being Gandalf. You know, this stuff doesn't happen until thousands of years later. So that's going to be an unfortunate breakage of lore there if they decide to go through with that. I can see the appeal, you know, to the normies because it's like, oh, Balrogs, remember? But that's not how it happens. So I hope that they don't go in that direction. I hope the Balrog is a different Balrog. We know that maybe, at the very least, there could be one or two more Balrogs out there besides Durin's Bane, so I'm hoping it's one of them. It probably won't be. You know, you gotta remind yourself when you're watching this that this is... It's made partially for me, but it's also made for, you know, an entire world who may or may not have any knowledge of the source material. Or their only knowledge of the material might be from the Peter Jackson movies. So they're trying to sell to those people, too. And then, yeah, the mineshaft collapses. You find out that there were four other dwarves down there. Everybody's real worried. They, um, they have this scene where it's a, it's a great scene. It's actually combined with the Arondir storyline. So I won't mention too much of that, but it, it's, it goes back and forth between Dissa singing this, um, this song. They mention how they sing to the mountain, which I thought was, was really cool. I, I, 
I love that. You know, that's a very, I can see how dwarves can be there emotionally singing to the mountain and they do it strategically, you know, because they want to know where to dig and they want to know, in this case, Dissa is singing it to, it's a plea to the mountain, she says, to release the four dwarves who are trapped in the collapsed mine. And it is running at the same time as this really cool sunrise shot that we get from the Arondir storyline, but I'll leave that over there. But it's it sounds amazing. I think it's the actress who is playing Dissa that is singing, and she sounds great. Um, really dramatic. And then that that ends, and you have this little exchange between Dissa and Elrond, and then uh, Doran comes in and announces that the four dwarves have survived. And he's all worried because he thinks that his dad is going to be upset with him for what had happened because I guess his father had forbade the um, the digging of Mithril and he's all mad at his dad and we get a nice little bit of lore dump where Elrond talks about Eorendil, his father, says that, you know, it's, it's basically the story that he went to Valinor and pleaded for the two kindreds and his call was answered and the Valar entered into the war. The, we, have, we have the War of Wrath and then he mentions how his you know, his father has essentially become the star. He was tasked with, with that duty. He, he's carrying the Silmaril and he acts as the, um, the runner of, of the star across the heavens. And I thought that was a nice, that was a nice little lore dump because it's, it's another reminder that grounds people like me, like, all right, we are still in Tolkien's universe, you know, amid all the creative decisions that Amazon takes. You know, I, I appreciated that little bit of lines and he tells Doran to, you know, lay off. He's like, I wish I could talk to my dad, but he's literally in the sky. So I can't. And that's true, right? We know that. So Doran goes, he humbles himself, goes to his father, and his father is totally cool. Uh, it's played by the guy. The only other thing I've seen him in is Ozark. He plays the heroin farmer guy who gets murked by his wife. Uh, but he's a great actor, and his voice sounds fantastic. He's very interesting as the king of the dwarves at this point. And he's sitting in a super crisp chair. I liked I liked the big chair he was sitting on. And he tells Doran to, he's like, it's fine. I love you. You got to go to Linden and figure out why Elrond is, what, what's really going on? You know, where, what's happening behind the scenes? And I think what's being alluded to is, so they're talking about what is the elves' main purpose here? And I think what they're alluding to is what's really going on with Celebrimbor and this project he has us working on? And why is Gilgalad so emotionally invested in it? So maybe we'll find out this week why that is. So yeah, that wraps up that storyline. And then we have Urandir. All right, now we can finally get to my favorite part of this episode. So we open up, and again, it, it's like it's almost like the same beginning of Arondir's storyline as we get from the last time. He's still captive. He's still he's hurting, and we have this dramatic introduction of this mysterious character Adar, which again means father in Sindarin. So. Adar walks up to Irondir and he says something like, um, where are you from? And Irondir says, Beleriand, which is great. We have a Beleriand reference. I think it was Nerd of the Rings. I reference him a lot because, you know, I love his content. But something I didn't cross my mind when it happened during this exchange. But, you know, Irondir mentioned Beleriand. So Beleriand exists in this 
But when we get the map in the prologue of the Noldor crossing from Valinor, we don't see Beleriand on the map, which is weird, but whatever. It's just something that's annoying. They should have had maybe like Beleriand showing in the north. But I, I, I don't care that much about that. But when he did mention that on his review, I was like, oh, yeah, you're right. That is weird. But he says Beleriand and then... Uh, Adar says, oh, by the mouth of the river. So we're assuming that that is the river Sirion, right? Because that is the, that's the, that's the big famous river in Beleriand. And the mouth of the river kind of leads, it leads out into the ocean. Um, And that's where a lot of the climactic portion of the Silmarillion kind of ends off at uh, for a lot of our characters. So I think that that is the reference that's being made. And I loved that. Moving on, you know, he mentions the, um, Arondir says, what are you? And then he says, well, why do, why do the orcs call you father? And Adar says something like, you have been told many lies, some so deep that the roots and the rocks now believe them. And I loved that. And the reason why I loved that is because it's very Tolkienian that that very statement the the roots and the rocks believing something being a part of the cosmic world you know we know that Morgoth he sowed evil into the world by singing his own song at creation during the Ainil delay so this idea that like evil or lies can be embedded into the rocks and roots themselves i really liked that bit of dialogue i thought that that was super very much something that it's verbiage that should be a part of this world right and this character adar right he's not he's not a canon character but he's talking right away in a way that is pleasing to hear if you're a tolkien fan it was just interesting the concepts that he immediately kind of starts to bring up and Oh, then he says something like, um, oh, oh, this this was another line that I love. The next line he says after the Roots and Rocks line was he says, reversing these lies would all but require creating a new world because they're so embedded into creation itself, which again, very Tolkienian, really loved that. You know, we know that at the end of Tolkien's teleology is that there will be a new Arda, sung into existence that's alluded to between the uh i'm trying to remember the uh the debate i believe that finrod has with andreth that's a that's a separate story it's kind of like an a little independent poem stanza that tolkien wrote it's it's a it's a debate between galadriel's brother and a um, a woman of the race of men who is uh, basically lamenting death and and they're having this kind of debate about death and it's it's alluded to that at the end of the world, men are essentially supposed to help Iluvatar uh, sing a new Ainulindale, um, sing a new world into existence. That's that's alluded to in that story. So we know that um, there will be a new world. So his references to creation of a new world, I thought, were great. That's what I want to hear. Uh, and then he says something about, he says... He says that he's not a god yet, which I thought was weird. I, I can't. I'm when another thing that people have to remember is that when people refer to the gods in in this world, they're referring to the Valar. 
and you know that's that's something that's that's something that actually evolved in Tolkien's writings over time. You know, because in the beginning, I and mean, I could be wrong on this. Anybody can correct me uh, if you want, but. According to what I know of, I, I believe in the beginning, before Tolkien really developed the idea that his universe would uh, be governed by one god, I don't think that, and, and this is before the Lord of the Rings, before The Hobbit uh, are even written, there's a lot of uh, character references to the gods referring to the Valar, which eventually become these characters who are actually subservient to one god. So that language kind of quickly developed into, okay, men call the Valar gods because they don't actually understand what they really are. But Tolkien, like C.S. Lewis, also used uh, the word, you know, lowercase g, god, to describe things that weren't actually really like the god of the universe. Like C.S. Lewis, if you read Chronicles of Narnia, he refers to the river gods, the tree gods. You know, it's, it's a word that's used a lot more loosely in those universes. So, but in this case, when characters are referring to gods, they're talking about the Valar. When the text refers to a Luvatar, it's, it's usually different names. But anyway, so I, I don't know if maybe this character, Adar, is, his goal is to become like the Valar. I don't know. But a really interesting bit of dialogue. And this has been my favorite part of that last episode. I guess to go over a Rondir storyline real quick, everything after that didn't interest me too much. We find out that Adar is looking for Theo's uh, sword, that, that he has this sword that was clearly constructed by Sauron. He sends Irondir back to the camp of the men who are now hiding out in the Elven Tower to tell them to basically join him or die. Um, I will say in the runaway scene, uh, I wasn't a huge fan of the slow motion parts where Irondir is rescuing Theo in the woods. That was like... Was, there was too much slow motion, but I did like the climax of that part. I liked where they, Irondir, Theo's mother, and Theo arrive at a clearing, and the sky just happens to open up when they're there. Because again, we get that, this presence of divine providence in these episodes, and they have alluded to it and displayed it multiple times. And like I said before, this scene is overlaid with Dis's scene of her singing the uh, plea to the mountain, and it just ended up looking really cool. Liked that part. Oh, the one thing I did want to touch on, they get back to the fortress, right, where it's assumed that they're going to make this last stand because clearly they're not going to surrender to Adar. And Theo is kind of, he's sitting in the corner and he's tending to this wound that he received when he went out to go get food where Arondir had to rescue him. Uh, the orc had like sliced his leg and he's sitting there and the old butcher kind of walks up to him and he says like I know you I know you took that sword out of my shed which again why is something that is this crucial just sitting in a box under somebody's shed under some butcher's shed I don't know and then he kind of grabs him and he he's like I know you took it and I have the scar right here on my arm. This this scar, I, I forgot to mention before, something pretty significant. Theo uses cutting himself to essentially activate the power of this blade. And he has a similar cut mark to the butcher guy. So something to consider there. You have to actually, you know, put a piece of yourself into whatever this blade is to make it work. Um, pretty dark. And the old guy says to him, Have you heard of him, lad? Have you heard of Sauron? 
And he actually refers to Sauron as a, a beautiful servant to Morgoth. He refers to Sauron as the beautiful servant who will return. And the he also mentions that the arrival of the meteor that the stranger came in as a herald of his return. So we'll see where that goes. I don't believe that the stranger is Sauron. I think that this old gentleman is wrong. Uh, but it was interesting to hear him refer to Sauron as a beautiful servant. We know that Sauron does take a beautiful form. I also don't think, I, I really don't think that Halbrand is Sauron at this point because I think that he's going to be, his character reveal is going to be much more groundbreaking. You know, I feel like Sauron is already in Eregion kind of influencing Celebrimbor to work on this project with the dwarves and they just haven't revealed his character yet. Uh, but yeah, that about wraps up the episode. Uh, I hope that was interesting. I know I was kind of rushing at a lot of parts, but I did this one a little bit more, you know, quickly and off the cuff. It's just an episode review. I don't enjoy doing these as much, I've noticed. I, I miss kind of jumping into the lore. So... I'm going to start maneuvering back to that and make these a little bit less uh, taxing. So, and I think you guys will appreciate that too, because I think that the majority of my listeners, you know, like to hear my thoughts on the show, but I think we really all just enjoy the source material and want to do more episodes about that. So I plan to keep doing these reviews, um, just maybe not spend as much time on them. Uh, And yeah, thanks so much for listening in. I really appreciate it, and uh, let me know what you thought of this week's episode.